0: Hey, good morning everybody, it's good to see all of you. It's uh, the winter time now and it's getting cold out there and it's, uh, it's good to be in here tonight or this morning. You know, this week, Cheryl and I lost someone very special um, to us, Terry Sato, who was the husband of Betsy Sato and the father of Lori and Garrick Sato. Uh, he was a really dear friend to us. Terry was uh, a no nonsense kind of a guy, always spoke his mind uh, in that way he really was a breath of fresh air and whenever we saw him whether it was at his car repair shop or here at church or at his home he always made us feel like family uh, he really did he was kind and and generous and hospitable and he'd always offer me a beer at the family gatherings and of which I always politely declined but we will never forget him and I know that uh, He will be missed as greatly, and I know that he's missed by his family and all of us. You know, I don't know who it was that said, one time said this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I don't know who said it, but it stuck with me for a long, long time. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Uh, The people you hang out with will influence the kind of person that you become. And being around Terry uh, influenced us for good. And King Solomon said something kind of similar to this uh, in the scriptures, Proverbs 13, 20. He said, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And I kind of like the New Living Translation paraphrase of this same verse, which says, walk with the wise and become wise, associate with fools and get in trouble. And I think there's so much truth to that. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You know, as as human beings, we all we all hunger for acceptance, and we seek validation, and we long to to belong, and we find these things in our friends. And as I look back on my own life, I can't uh, help but think of my friends and those who truly shaped uh, me into becoming the person that I am today. In high school, it was Dennis and Charlie uh, who were my buddies, and when we weren't in class, we were cruising down Hollywood Boulevard in Charlie's 56 Chevy or fishing all night at the Redondo Beach Pier smoking cigars. In college, it was another dentist, Dennis Loeb, who introduced me to Jesus. And then as a young adult, it was Don and Bill and Lonnie and Wayne and Dean who really spurred me on in my relationship with Christ. Later on, God brought two other friends into my life, Jason Mitchell and Dave Reynolds, who challenged me to start South Bay Community Church, and since I've been at this church for the last 26 years, God has blessed me with so many amazing friends who love me not just for being a pastor, but for being a dad and a husband, just for being Gary and a wannabe Jedi Knight. And when I have, and when I have um, been at my highest, they have celebrated with me. And when I've been at my lowest. They have prayed for me, and they have encouraged me, and they have believed in me, and they have cheered me on, and I don't know what I'd do without my friends. Now, Pastor J.D. Greer said that friendship is a secret ingredient to having an enduring faith. He said it is a secret ingredient to having an enduring faith, and I think he might be right. And here's how he categorized his friends. It's according to these three circles He says that he thinks he got this from Pastor Andy Stanley, but he doesn't remember. But he would categorize friends according to these three circles. First, the outermost circle would be the care circle. And these are the people in your life that you care about. They might be your casual acquaintances or people you work with or people you go to school with. You may not have regular contact with them, but when you see them, you care about them. You care about their lives. And those who are in the care circle would have a rather low degree of sway over your life simply because you don't see them that often. So they would have a low degree of sway or influence over your life. J.D. Greer's second circle would be the influence circle, that one right in the middle of of those two. And these are the people that you influence and who influence you. And these are the people you would categorize as good friends or close friends. And thus, you have a greater degree of influence over them, and they have a greater degree of influence over you. And the degree of sway that they would have over you is what I would consider moderate. It would just be more moderate, just a little bit more than the care folks. And finally, that innermost circle. That innermost circle would be the intimacy circle right there, which represents just a small group of friends, maybe three or four people. And these would be your best friends, your BFFs, and if you have a spouse, it would be your husband or your wife would certainly be in that circle. And these are the people who know you best and perhaps have known you the longest. These are the people who, with whom you have a deep emotional and spiritual connection. And these are the people who would have a high degree of sway over your life. They have a high degree of influence over your life. It goes without saying that the friends who fall into the influence circle and the, and the intimacy circle are the ones that have the greatest impact on your life. So I want to ask you, who are your friends? Who are your friends? Who are the people that would fill your intimacy circle? Who are those three or four people who would be in that circle? And, And what about those in the influence circle? Are they positive or are they negative? Because they can certainly be negative as well as positive. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your friends can make or break your life. If your friends are morally bankrupt and godless, if your friends are just a bunch of lazy bums, if all your friends like to do is get high, if your friends are more concerned about making money and climbing the corporate ladder, if all they do is spew anger and hate, if all they care about is sex and pleasure, if all they do is lie, cheat and steal, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Today we come to the fourth chapter in the book of James. We've been studying this for a couple of months now. And what a great study it's been. And we're, really, we're getting very close to wrapping it up. we just got one more chapter to go. But if you bought your, brought your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And the passage we're going to look at today is about friendship. It is about friendship. Specifically, it's about a friendship that is absolutely toxic. It is toxic. And, and I think that you'll find this... Passage, fascinating and and also inspiring at the same time. But before we jump in, I want to, again, encourage you, bring your Bibles so you can mark it up. And you also have in your Baywatch, which is our program, there's a sheet in there with all the verses listed there for you. And you'll notice on the very first uh, sheet there, on the first page, is, is James chapter 4, 1 through 10, the ones that we're going to cover today, and a couple of other verses. And there are other verses as you open that sheet on the second page, and then most of your outline, your fill-ins are on your, on your third page. You're going to be jumping back and forth, all right? So use that in your Bible, and we'll get through this today. But let me open up our time in a word of prayer. Father, it is great to be here this morning. As the weather turns cold and it's beautiful outside, God, it is, there's nothing that replaces being together as a church family. And Father, I just thank you so much for all the things that you're doing here. I'm so heartened, God, by the people in this church. I'm so heartened by, by 25 people going out yesterday to help build a home for Habitat Humanity, that someone could have a home this Christmas and God, thank you for what you're doing and stirring in each and every one of us. And God, we look forward to all that you have in store for us. And Father, our thoughts and our prayers are with uh, Terry's family, for Betsy and Lori and Garrick and, and the grandkids. I know that their hurt and their loss is, is uh, extreme and, 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 it, and it is acute. And we, we pray, God, for your, your blessings and comfort to be with them. And God, thank you so much for Terry. Thank you so much for the man that he was. Well, this morning, God, as we open up your scriptures again in James chapter 4, God, I, I pray that you would speak to every one of us. God, we, no one needs to hear from me. We don't need to hear from me, but we, I, I pray and ask and beg, God, that we would hear from you, that we would hear from your word, that it would be clear to us, and that we would hear from your Holy Spirit, that we would hear literally the words of God spoken to us today. And God, use these things that we learn, that we might understand that toxic friendship that we've got to stay away from and that friendship that we ought to be drawn to. So thank you, Father. We commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so James chapter 4. Turn to James chapter 4. And rather than start at the top, verse 1, I want to start kind of in the middle, verse 4, because verse 4 is really the heart of the passage. It really is the centerpiece of this passage. Everything in this section revolves around verse 4. So take a look at it with me, and let me read it to you. James chapter 4, verse 4, James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In this verse, James spells out what is the most toxic friendship you could ever have, and that is a friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. In verse 4, underline friendship with the world and underline friend of the world. Now, the key to understanding this passage is what's the world? What's the world? So circle the word world. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. It's not pronounced cosmos. It's pronounced cosmos in the Greek. And it's where we get the word Cosmopolitan. Cosmos has several different meanings. Let me tell you what they are. Let me just give you three of them, and I want to give these to you because it's critical to your understanding of this. Our understanding of this passage, we need to know what these words mean. And I think that you're going to notice as I go through these, just very very quickly, that context determines the meaning of the word cosmos. All right. So first, cosmos can refer to the physical earth, such as in Acts chapter 17 verse. 12. Uh, verse 24, take a look at it. The God who made the cosmos, the God who made the world, and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So that first one there, cosmos, world, is everything in it. This, is, this refers to the world that God made. It is the it refers to the physical earth. Second, cosmos can refer to people, to the people who live on the earth. We see this in John 3:16. For God so loved the cosmos... That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the cosmos, does not mean God so loved the physical earth. Oh, he loved the beaches and the mountains and the deserts. No, God, for, for God so loved the inhabitants of the world. For God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, all right? So this is all, cosmos can refer to the people of the earth. Third, cosmos can refer to the godless value system which we live in. First John, we see this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It says, do not love the world or do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, cosmos, Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. In verse 16, the word world is cosmos and it speaks of a value system. It's, it does not say here for everything in the world, meaning everything, all the people, the lust of... No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean all the, <clears throat> all the people who live here or, or the physical earth. For everything in the world cosmos, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, this speaks of a value system which is characterized by lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And this is the cosmos that James is writing about in James chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> when he said, whoever wishes to be a friend of the cosmos makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, whoever whoever makes himself a friend of the world's corrupt value system is an enemy of God. That, that's This is about about the value system that we live in. So write this one down. Friendship with the world, with this cosmos, is toxic. It is poisonous. It is destructive because of what it does to our relationship with God. It is destructive. It is toxic because the focal point of the world's value system is self. It is me. It is about... Me, it is about what's best for me. It is about what makes me feel good. It's about what advances my cause. It is about what makes me happy. It is about what promotes me. Me is the focal point of the world's value system. And here's where friendship, this friendship will take us. Friendship with this world will take us. First, it leads to conflict with others. You can fill that in. It leads to conflict with others. Now, let's go back to verse 1. Let's take it from the top. James begins verse 1 with a question, and then he proceeds to answer the question in verses 2 and 3. Here's the question, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, why don't you get along with your parents? Why don't you get along with your spouse? Why are you always arguing with your wife? Why are you always fighting with your children? Why are you always fighting with your brothers and sisters? Why are you always butting heads with people at work? That's the question. Why are there quarrels and fights among you? The fact is we all, all have people in our lives who push our buttons and people we don't get along with. And Jesus gives us the answer to the question by asking another question. Take a look at it in the second sentence, verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So circle the word passions. Is it not this? Isn't this the reason you don't get along? Because your passions are at war within you. This word passions is, very, is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it is the word hedone. It's where we get the word hedon or hedonist or hedonism, hedone. And hedone refers to the uncontrolled desire to satisfy all of your wants and all of your desires. So according to James, it's hedone. It is our unchecked cravings to satisfy self that fuels conflict. In other words, it is selfishness that fuels our our conflicts. It is me-centeredness that triggers these interpersonal conflicts, even to the point that we're willing to kill at times. Verse 2 The next verse says, you desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. It's all about self. It's because of self that we get in all these conflicts with people. I remember early on in our marriage, uh, I was struggling uh, in our marriage and I noticed it got worse as time went on. It got worse after the kids arrived, actually. And I love my girls, all three of my girls, my wife and my daughters. But I had this internal struggle that I didn't really uh, share with anybody. And, and here was my struggle. I found, I was frustrated because I found that I could no longer do what I wanted to do. That was my struggle and it was a, it was a very real struggle. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Cheryl would say to me, we need to do this and we need to do that. And we need to go to so-and-so's birthday party, another birthday party? Are you kidding? When you got kids, it's kind of like one birthday party after the other. And I didn't want to go to all these things, and I didn't want to do all the things that she said, we had to, you need to go out and buy some more milk. We need to get some more baby formula. We need to get, we got to go to Target. We got to go to Walmart. We got to do, it was just driving me crazy. And, I'll, and, and I didn't want to do that, and I was so frustrated by it. And I was struggling with it, and I would resist And I would push back, and I'll never forget the day when Cheryl called me out. She said something to the effect, it's not about you anymore. I was bummed. It's not about you anymore. And 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 it hit me right between the eyes. When you get married, it's not about you anymore. When you have kids, it's not about you anymore. You want to know why? So many marriages fail. Marriages don't fail because of money. Marriages don't fail because of the in-laws or because of irreconcilable differences. Marriages fail because husbands and wives are selfish. And they fail to understand that it's not about them anymore. They think it's about them, but it's not about them anymore. And I believe a successful marriage requires complete and total relinquishing and surrender of self. That's what it takes for a marriage to succeed. It's the same reason why families fight selfishness. It's the same reason why there is road rage. It's the reason why there's so much hate in the world today because we are selfish. We think it's all about us. Friendship with the world leads to conflict with others. Second, it leads to conflict with God. You can write that one down. Friendship with the world leads to conflict with God. Take a look at verse 4 again. Take a look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Circle the word enmity. Therefore, whoever, makes, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Circle, makes himself. This is such a disturbing passage. I mean, it really is such a disturbing passage. <clears throat> so the word enmity, which I had you circle, is the, is the word that means hostility. Friendship with the world leads to hostility with God. And then in that second sentence in verse 4 I had you circle makes himself this is the Greek word boulomai and this is this is fascinating it means to choose. I get this. It means to choose. And what James was saying here was that when you align yourself with the world you are choosing to be an enemy of God. You it's your choice. You are choosing to be an enemy of God. I can't imagine anyone choosing to be an enemy of God. But that's exactly what James says we do when we wittingly or unwittingly associate with the world. We are choosing to be an enemy of God. And being an enemy of God, that's about the worst thing you could ever be or the worst thing you could ever do. Because if you want to be an enemy of God, you will not win. You will not win against God. You're a holy hope. If you are an enemy of God, your only hope is that God doesn't exist. That's your only hope, in which case you have nothing to worry about if he doesn't exist. But I'm going to tell you something. Do you really want to take that chance? Because God does exist. There is a God, and he is for real. And his son Jesus is for real. The Holy Spirit is real. And one day we will give an account of our lives to him, whether you believe in him or not. You will give an account of your life to God, to Almighty God. And do you understand why it is that when someone becomes a friend of God, why it, it's, he's classified as an enemy of God? Do you know why that's the case? It's because, because the world's corrupt value system is controlled by Satan, who is God's arch enemy. is his greatest nemesis. Take a look at 1 John 5.19. The apostle John wrote, We know that we are from God, and the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one, the whole cosmos is controlled by the devil. In fact, the Bible calls him the God of this world. We see this in Second Corinthians four four. I'll put it up here for you. In in their case, the God of this world, lowercase G, God. <clears throat> in this ca- in their case, the God of this cosmos, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Satan is the God of this world, and that's why when we align ourselves to the world, we become enemies of God because we are aligning ourselves. With God, God's greatest nemesis, the devil himself. When you take your stand with the world, when you side with, with the world and all of its indulgence, when you love the world more than you love, the, more than you love God, then, the, then the, Father, the love of the Father is not in him, as 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says. And you make yourself out to be an enemy of God. It's as if you're declaring war on Almighty God. It doesn't get any worse than that. It can't get any worse than that to, de- to be an enemy of God. And that brings us to verse 5. The, verse 5, this is, this is a very difficult verse. You can take a look at it. It's a very difficult verse to interpret. and it's, this, is, this is a verse that has stumped Bible scholars and teachers for, for centuries. But let me just read it to you. And it says this, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us? Let me read it one more time. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture that the scripture says, quote, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us. Unquote. Now, in this verse, James seems to be quoting scripture, and there's actual quotes around the scripture. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Now here's the problem. There isn't a single verse in the Bible either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, where you can find this verse. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that matches this particular quotation, which James is giving to us here, which means James wasn't actually quoting a specific verse. What he was doing instead was he was generalizing a teaching that's found in the Scriptures. That's how we explain what was going on here. So what was the general teaching that he was trying to to teach us here? Well, let me give you a couple of verses that might give us a clue as to what he was saying here. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24 and through 26. It, it says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When, your father, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess, and you will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. All right? Exodus 34, one more verse. And this one is a very, one sentence, I think it really sums up everything that we just read here in Deuteronomy. It says kind of the same thing. But Exodus 34, 14 says, Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What we have in these two verses is a picture of God as a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He is jealous, not the same way we understand and know jealousy. He is jealous for our wholehearted devotion and affection. That's what he is jealous for. He is devoted for your wholehearted devotion and affection. He doesn't want you to be wholehearted or devoted to anything or anyone other than him. And I get that. I get that because I know that I am jealous for Cheryl's wholehearted, and devotion, wholehearted devotion and affection toward me. I don't want her to be even slightly devoted or affectionate to another man. And it even bothers me that we have a male dog in our house, Carmel, and he licks her, constantly licks her, and I say, Stop, I'll say this to him, you can ask her, Stop licking her, Carmel. Right? now, It bothers me. In the same way, she doesn't want me to be even slightly devoted, or affectionate to another woman. She wants my wholehearted devotion and attention, and she doesn't have to worry about Coconut, who is female, because Coconut can't stand me. (laughs) I want you to know that God is so jealous. He is so jealous for your love and devotion that even when you stray a little bit, when you stray just a little bit, He doesn't like it. In fact, if you stray a lot, it can provoke him to anger. can provoke him to anger. And I believe that's what verse 5 is getting at, that he yearns jealously over the Spirit, over the Holy Spirit, that he has made to dwell in us. He has given you his Holy Spirit, his, his deposit, because he loves you. And he lives inside of you, and he yearns jealously over that and what he's done in your life, because you're a child of God. And therefore, he doesn't want you to be, he doesn't want us to be friends with the world. He doesn't want us to love stuff more than we love him. He doesn't want us to love pleasure more than we love him. He doesn't want us to love anything or anyone more than we love him. But that's exactly what happens when we become friends with the world. We love the world. And it's akin to, in God's eyes, I believe it's akin to committing spiritual adultery. You know, there was a time in my Christian life, in my Christian life, when I loved the world and my greatest ambition in life was to be rich that was it i wanted to be rich as, a, as i was a christ follower and i was on my way i once entered into a partnership with one of the biggest developers here in southern california to to build to construct a billion dollar project in downtown la it was comprised of a million square feet of office space a million square feet of office space, a hotel, condominiums, and retail space. And, it, and they, we got the best architect in the country. And he, here's a design of the, of the building that he came up with. It's going to be a it's massive building, a million square feet. It's two of those Bank of America towers in downtown LA. That would be a million square feet. I calculated that once the project was wrapped up and the tenants moved in, I would have become a millionaire in the first year. When I crunched the numbers, my jaw dropped. My jaw dropped. And, and so even all I could think of was how filthy rich I was going to be. All I could think of was all the houses I would buy and where I would buy them. And all I could think of was all the cars that I would drive and, and all the nice restaurants that I would start eating at instead of Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out Burger. <clears throat> and all the vacations I would take all over the world. I was in love with the world and I couldn't wait for the project to be finished, and then the project fell through. Fell through. I was devastated, and I was angry and depressed for weeks, and then I sensed the general rebuke of the Holy Spirit just exposing my evil heart, and I was reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, You've all are probably familiar with this. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, the danger that Jesus pointed out was that we can be a slave. We can become a slave to the world. We can become a slave to money. You can't have two masters. And God exposed my evil heart, my wicked heart. And I, and I had to ask him for forgiveness. And I just want to say this. You read this passage and you think, okay, I, I, I shouldn't have any money. No, no. Money is in and of itself is not evil. It is not immoral. It is amoral. Money in it, in and of itself is not evil. The apostle said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Take a look at first Timothy six ten: For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He didn't say money is, it is the love of money. It is coveting money, it is pursuing money, it is desiring money, it is longing for money. It, and it goes on to say in, in verse 10, it is through, the, through this craving, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's when we make it our God. It's, it's when we love stuff and more stuff and more stuff and more stuff and we pursue it. That's when our hearts can be drawn away from Christ. And as it says here, some have wandered away from the faith. Not, not everyone has wandered away from the faith. Boy, I mean, I've known Christ followers who are wealthy, but you would never know it. You know why you would never know it? Because, because of their humility and because of their quiet and extreme generosity, because they're just so giving. And they don't even want people to know that they're giving. And, and you look at their lives, and, and I know that what they're like because Christ is the most important thing. Christ's most important thing. And we have people like that in our church. And I pray for people like that, that God would give them more because God can use them to touch more. See, the problem with the world, whether you have money or not, the problem with the world, whether you have money or not, is that, is that we can't escape it. It's impossible to, to escape it. We are surrounded by it. it. It permeates everything, all of life. It permeates politics and economics and education and entertainment and even the church, even religion. And it's built on a fabric of satanic lies that it's all about you, that it's all about stuff. It's all about more stuff and more stuff and more stuff, and you just got to get more stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the world's system. And the challenge that we have as Christ followers Is how do we live in the world but not be of it? How do we live in it but not be of it? And as James James characterized the challenge this way in James chapter 1, verse 27, go back to the first chapter in verse 27. He said this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Pure, undefiled religion is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. There it is right there. Keep yourself unstained from the world. That's the challenge. How do we be part of the world but not in the world but not of it? Right? You keep, how do we keep ourselves unstained and pure from the world? Well, in the next four verses, James gives us nine commands, nine commands that, that helps us, that will keep us from being stained by the world. And it, and it begins with this. This is not a command, but it begins with verse 6. And he says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. He gives more Underline, he gives more grace. I'm so glad start, James started with this. Because we all mess up, don't we? We all mess up. I messed up. I was stained by the world. I love the world. I love money. I wanted to be rich. And then I blew it. And God gave me more grace. And the word grace here means undeserved favor. In other words, God gives us a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. And he gave me, I mean, I, as I look back um, upon the course of my life, he gave me a fifth chance and a tenth chance and a one-hundredth chance and a thousandth I've lost count how many chances God has given me, how often he has lavished his grace upon me over and over again. Every time I fail, he welcomes, welcomes me back into fellowship with him. I can't believe it. And do you know who God gives grace to, according to this passage? It tells us right here, he gives grace, not, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, God gives grace to those who confess to him that they messed up. God gives grace to those who who tell him, God, I, I blew it. God, I failed you. I have offended you. God gives grace to those who cry out to him and tell him that they need him. Let me ask you something. Do you need grace because you've blown it? Right? God gives grace to the humble, not to the prideful, not to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So write this one down. I need grace. I need grace. You know, years ago, there was a battleship. It was on routine maneuvers at sea during some very rough weather. and the captain was worried about the deteriorating weather conditions, so he stayed on the bridge. And late that night, late that night, um, the lookout on the bridge uh, suddenly shouted, "Captain! Captain, a light bearing on the starboard bow!" The captain quickly asked, "Is it stationary? or Is it moving?" The lookout replied, "It's stationary, it's stationary." That meant the battleship was on a collision, on a dangerous collision course with another ship. And so the captain immediately ordered a signalman to signal, the shimple, uh, to, the, signal to the ship. And, and he said, tell him this, we are on a collision course. I advise you to change course 20 degrees east. Back came the response from the other ship. You changed course 20 degrees west. Well, the captain didn't like that. He was agitated by the response. And so the captain told the signalman, send another message. Send this message. I am the captain. You change course 20 degrees east. Back came the response for the second time. I am a second-class seaman. You better change course 20 degrees west. And the captain was furious when he got that response. He shouted to the signalman, send back one final message. I am a battleship. Change course 20 degrees east now. Back came the flashing response. I am a lighthouse. Guess who changed course? The battleship had to submit to the lighthouse. See, if you want to remain unstained from the world, the first thing that James said we need to do, now we come to the commands, the nine commands. The first thing he said we need to do is submit to God. We need to submit to God. This is the first one. I submit to God, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourself therefore to God. Circle the word submit. This is a, in the Greek, this is a military term. It it means to, to place or to rank under. In order to be unstained by the world, we've got to first submit to God. We've got to put ourselves under him. And we've got to acknowledge who he is. We've got to acknowledge that God is God. We've got to acknowledge who he is, and we've got to be willing to submit ourselves to his leadership and to his authority and to his will. Your will, not my will. We've got to submit. Are you submitted to God? Or is it all about you? The second command is resist. Take a look at verse 7 again. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can write that one down. I must resist the devil. I must resist the devil. I don't know if you know this or not, but Satanism is on the rise in America. There there are all kinds of news stories about this all the time, about Satanism being on the the rise in America. In August, just a couple months ago, 150 members of the Satanic Temple Escorted a devilish goat statue on the grounds of the Arkansas State Capitol Little Rock to shouts of "Hail Satan!" I, have a, I was going to show you a picture of it. And I thought I'm not going You don't need to see that. We don't need to put that. In, you know, show that in church. And they did it to protest the 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 statue of the Ten Commandments there on the on the ground. They said we don't like that, so we're going to bring our own. And, and they bring this thing in there. It looks it's a hideous looking thing, and all these people are shouting "Hail Satan!" "Hail Satan!" They are bringing the Satanic Temple is bringing the devil to America. Not only that, this is even worse. Throughout the throughout throughout our country, the Satanic Temple is attempting. They are attempting to launch after-school Satan clubs on elementary school campuses. I'm not kidding you. You can read about that. Just Google it, and you'll find it. They are trying to launch after-school Satan clubs on elementary school campuses. It's unbelievable. They're trying to bring the devil to our children. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that that's what's happening because because who's in charge of the world? Satan is the god of this world. And, And there's one thing you don't have to convince a Satanist of, and that is the reality of Satan. You don't have to convince them that, you don't have to do an apologetics course saying, well, here's all the reasons why the devil is real. Well, they know the devil is real. I wouldn't be surprised if they have, in their, in their black masses and all their occultish uh, practices, that they have seen the, the power of the devil. The devil is real. Satan is real, and he hates you, and he hates the church, and he wants to take us down, and he'll lie to you and he'll tempt you, and he'll do whatever he needs to do to take, take you down and destroy your life. And so I love, I love what James had to say here. How do we fight the devil? How do we fight the devil? Well, he said you, you fight him by resisting him. You resist him. In verse 7, circle the word resist. In the Greek, I love this. I love this. In the Greek, the word resist. And again, we don't get this in the English, right? And it means, it means to hold your ground. Hold your ground. Push back. Refuse to be moved. When the devil hits you, refuse to be moved. Hold your ground. Don't, don't. Don't be moved by him. Refuse to be moved. We must resist the devil. You know what the problem is? Church, Let me, I'll be straight with you. Let me, you know what the problem is? We resist God more often than we resist the devil. Think about that. We resist God more than we resist the devil. When you're tempted to go on that Internet site... And and you know you shouldn't. You, the whole you know you know the Holy Spirit is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't go there, don't do it. And you know what the Scriptures say about fleeing youthful lusts. What do we do? We resist God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and we go there. We we resist. Sometimes we resist God more than we resist the devil. When, you're, you, when you're, somebody cuts you off and you're tempted to just give them a tongue lashing, don't do it. You know, let, your, let your speech be seasoned with grace. What do we do? We resist God and we let him have it with all these expletives. Rather than resist God, we, we, need, we need to resist the devil. Next time you're tempted, next time you're tempted to do something that you shouldn't do, next time you're tempted to say something you shouldn't say, Resist the devil. No, I'm not going to do this. Resist the devil more than resist God. I mean, we got to resist him. And and when you resist the devil, the promise here, it's a promise, church. It's a promise. He will flee from you. He will split. If you say no, next time you're tempted to do drugs, next time you're tempted to get drunk, no, I'm not going to do this. And the devil will flee from you. Third, the third commandment is draw near to God. Draw near to God. You know, I love this. You know, after you resist the devil, what do you do? Oh, you just, you just draw near to, to sweet Jesus. You just come and rest in his, his arms. Draw, I must write that down. I must draw near to God. Verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Make a conscious attempt, in other words, make a conscious attempt to get close to God. I mean, do you on a regular basis make a conscious, deliberate attempt, an intentional attempt just to get close to God? How can you do that, man? Just pray. Just, God, I just need you. God, I want you. God, fill me with your presence. God, come into my heart. I need you right now. Do you ever do that? That's Draw near to God. You know the promises. You know what will happen when you draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. He will come right there and be with you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's the third commandment. The fourth command is this: cleanse your hands. Verse eight, again. Second sentence: cleanse your. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your, cleanse your hands, you sinners. In this second sentence, and. Cleanse your hands. Circle the word cleanse. And by the way, all these words, all these commands I'm giving you, these are all verbs in the imperative mood. Again, we don't get that in in the English translation. But these are all in the imperative mood, which means they are commands. They are not suggestions or recommendations. These are commands. These are things we are commanded to do. James says we must cleanse our hands. You can write that one down. I must cleanse my hands. This does not mean go to the bathroom and wash your hands. This This does not mean use some hand sanitizer. Right, the hands represented the external behavior of a person. And the idea of cleansing your hands here with spiritual connotations was to cleanse yourself of the evil things that you've done. Just cleanse your hands. And then James goes on, he said, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. So circle the word purify. This is the fifth command. I must purify my heart. It isn't sufficient to just clean our hands, but we got to purify our hearts. We got to clean our hearts. We got to clean the outside, but we also got to clean the inside of us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know your heart. I mean, our heart is protected by pericardium. It's protected by your rib cage. It's protected by all this flesh, and yet our hearts can get very dirty. It gets dirty by the evil things that we think and the evil things that we do. Have you ever had a dirty heart? Yeah, I'm sure you have. We all have. And it makes you sick to your stomach. I mean, you know when you have a dirty heart. I mean, you you just know it. There's not dirt on it. There's just evil in it. It makes you sick. The reality is soap and water can't clean our hands and our hearts. Only God can. That's what David asked God to do after he committed adultery. In Psalm 51, verse 10, he prayed this. Next verse, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He prayed and asked God to create a clean heart in him. And that's exactly what God did. He cleansed his heart. Did you know that you too can have a clean heart today? You can have a clean heart if you just ask Him, ask Him to purify your heart. God created, you ought to, you ought to pray that right now. God just created me a clean heart. God, will you just create me a clean heart? Ask him that right now. 1 John 1, how do we do that? If we ask him, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all. That circle the word all, all unrighteousness. Not just some, not just a few, but all unrighteousness. Now let me begin to wrap this up. Verse 9. He goes on, James goes on, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. All right, here are three more commands. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Will you circle those three words? Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Instead of the, the word wretched, a better word, according to the Greek, would be grieved. Be grieved. And instead of the word weep, another translation is wail. In other words, Be grieved. Mourn and wail. And all three of these words have to do with our attitude towards sin. James said, be grieved and mourn and wail over your sin. Cry over your sin. You can write those three, three down. I must grieve over my sin. I must mourn over my sin. I must wail over my sin. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been so broken over your sin that it has caused you to grieve and to mourn and to wail. Have you ever been so devastated by the things that you have thought and the things that you have done? So devastated that you've become undone by it that you can't even, you can't even stand because you have offended a, a holy and awesome God. Have you ever been so good? Like, God, I, forgive me, God. God, what have I done? Have you have you ever, we should all, we should all have that attitude toward our sin. You know, today, in our country, we glorify sin. We glorify sin like, whoa, isn't that great, man? You got high. Another conquest. Way to go. We're so cavalier in our attitude toward sin. But, and and, and We do that, we're just just like the rest of the world. You want to be unstained by the world? We have a different attitude towards sin. Our sin ought to grieve us. It ought to cause us to mourn. It ought to cause us to wail with grief. Finally, verse 10, the last one, this is number nine. Verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So just, um, I must humble myself. Again, it's a imperative mood, it's a command. Humble myself. We all know what that is. I'm not going to belabor that. So here are the nine commands again. One more time. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve over sin. Mourn over sin. Wail over sin. And be humble. And, and do you know why? Do you know why if you do these nine things, you will keep yourself unstained from the world? It's because... Instead of being a friend of the world, when you do these nine things, you will in essence become a friend of God. You'll be a friend of God. God will be your friend. How can God not want to be your friend when you submit to him, when you resist his arch enemy, when you cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and you grieve and mourn and weep and humiliate yourself before him? How can God not want to be your friend? God loves it when we do these things. Let me ask you something. Final question. Would you like for God, for the God of the universe, to be your friend? I know he would like to be yours. The God of the universe wants to be your friend. You know, if the worst thing you could ever be is the enemy of God, the best thing you could ever be is a friend of God. And if you have God as a friend... Just imagine what your future will be like. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your future, our future, will be glorious. It really will. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close our time in in prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to... I want to give you an opportunity. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here today and you've been living for the world. It's all about carousing and pleasure and things and stuff for you. And maybe because of that, sets you at odds with God I want to give you an opportunity today to come clean and and ask God to forgive you of all those things and tell God you want to be His friend would you like to be His friend? would you like to have God as your friend? why don't you pray this prayer dear God confess to you that I have loved the world more than I have loved you. I have loved my pleasure. I have loved my stuff. I have loved the things that, have, that this world has to offer more than I have loved you. I have loved people and relationships more than I have loved you. And I can I come before you and I confess these sins to you, God. I confess my evil heart to you. And I grieve over it, and I mourn over it, and I wail over it. And God, right now, I want to draw near to you. I want to draw near to you, God. And I ask God that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would touch my heart and forgive me of my sins. I ask God that you would wrap your powerful, loving arms around me right now. So Lord, I come and I submit myself to you. I submit myself to your authority, to your will, for your lordship help me from this point on God. help me from this day forward God to live for you and you alone you are jealous over me help me to love you and you alone Father that's our prayer today God that's my prayer today I pray Father that for all of us forgive us God for all those times that we have resisted you instead of resisting your enemy Father, make this be a turning point for every one of us. God, that from this day forward, we'll live for you and we'll love you and put you first. And we will be unstained by the world. And every time we fall, God, we'll keep running back to you. And I know that you will keep lavishing your grace upon me. God, we thank you so much for who you are. What an amazing father you are. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. God, keep working in us that we would be the people you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.